Allahu wasallam barak ala nabiyyina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in amma ba'd my dear brothers and sisters salam alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu I'm going to start off with a story which I will come back to later on in the lecture inshallah and the story is as follows there's a, a great scholar of Islam Sheikh uh, bin Baz rahimahullahu ta'ala he was the grand mufti of Saudi Arabia and he had a very profound habit that when his students would gather together and they were about to eat before the food would be served he would ask everyone that is present give me a reminder share a reminder share a benefit with the group so the youngest of them to the oldest of them they would all share a reminder and then eventually he would listen to what everyone would have to say and if there's any commentary to be made he would make that commentary and as the students were present over there they would all think of the most eloquent quotes that they've come across the most rarest of inspirational moments that they've heard of or have read about and they would share that till one individual what he did was he took a portion of the Quran from Surah Al-Imran and he recited it and that was what actually made the Shaykh cry Rahimahullahu Ta'ala and I will get back to this story in a little bit my dear brothers and sisters when we think about spirituality I want us to develop a foundation as to what it is and why we need it. Starting off with why we need it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He created the body and everything that the body needs, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the earth to excavate it and for it to be, you know, come out so that mankind can use it and eat from it. And this is what nourishes the body. You will find everything that the human body needs from there. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't just create the human body, He created the soul and He created the spirit. Now where does the soul get its nutrition from? And eventually you realize that the soul also needs to be rejuvenated and that will come from revelation. It will come from the Quran, it will come from the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah, he says something very profound. He says every individual will have a void in their heart. Every individual will have an emptiness in their heart. And that emptiness can only be fulfilled by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, by His remembrance, by His love, by hope of Him. That is the only way it can be filled. But the unfortunate reality is, if mankind do not know who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, they try to fill that void with other than Allah. They try to fill that void with other than Allah. So for some individuals, they'll fill it with alcohol, they'll fill it with substance abuse, they'll fill it with promiscuity, they'll fill it with a wide variety of things. Till they eventually realize that those things will only make the void so much worse, so much deeper, causing them so much more pain. Then you have other individuals that will fill it with practices that they think are going to fill that void. Things like meditating in the dark or things like listening to certain parts of mu certain types of music and chanting and they think you know what that will fill that void in my heart but in reality it won't and the only thing that will fill that void is the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and this is one of the things that makes Islam so unique it is is its all-encompassing nature that yes we have salah in our deen praying we have zakat giving charity we have fasting but we also have this concept of spirituality. Now, which leads us to the question, once we've understood why we need it, what exactly does spirituality mean? 
You'll find certain groups in Islam that when they talk about tazkiyah, it's about them being a part of a certain school of thought that their shaykh trains them in. And the shaykh gets to do pretty much whatever he wants. And you elevate your shaykh to the highest levels of, of a platform, even to the degree where it will be kufr and shirk with Allah. That they start attributing to their shaykhs that their shaykhs know the unseen. Their shaykhs have traveled to the past and they travel to Mecca every day to pray their salah. And once they reach their highest levels, you know what? They're no longer even required to pray. Like this is some of the type of nonsense that the Muslim world will deal with. But when we talk about spirituality in its most fundamental sense, my dear brothers and sisters, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran, قَدْ أَفْلَحَ مَنْ that successful indeed is the one that does tazkiyah, that purifies and remembers the name of his Lord and establishes the salah. So when we talk about tazkiyah amongst the salaf, the way they understood this concept of tazkiyah was that spirituality is that which will remove the diseases from the heart, the veils from the heart that become an obstacle to you worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That become an obstacle to you worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So what we don't realize, my dear brothers and sisters, is there are sins that we will commit that prevent us from doing further good deeds. And Sufyan al-Thawri rahimahullah, he says something very profound. To those individuals that can't wake up in the middle of the night to pray and wake up for tahajjud and qiyamul layl, he says to them, that those are sins that you commit during the day that shackle you up and chain you up at night. So once you stop committing those sins during the day, that will facilitate you waking up at night. Because waking up at night, my dear brothers and sisters, is not about setting an alarm clock. Anyone can set an alarm clock. It's about fighting your nafs, coming over that sleep to understanding, worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the most beneficial thing that you can do right now, so what I want to dedicate this lecture to my dear brothers and sisters is understanding what spirituality was like during the time of the Salaf. Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah, and you can make this as point number one for those of you that are taking notes. Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah, he says that the foundations of Tazkiyah are based upon two principles. Principle number one is understanding that this dunya is finite, and principle number two is understanding that the akhirah is infinite. So what does that mean that this dunya is finite? We're going to get into some basics of aqidah. Understanding that this dunya is finite, meaning that any pain that you feel is only for a short period of time. Any pleasure that you feel is only for a short period of time. Everything that you experience is for a short period of time. Now why is that relevant? That is relevant because whatever ambitions you have in life for this life, then understand that those ambitions can only be fulfilled for a short period of time. So don't invest all of your time in the life of this world for something that is finite. And then the second principle that everything in the Akhirah is infinite. And that teaches us that the hellfire is infinite. It is everlasting, my dear brothers and sisters. And that is something that you fear and that you don't want to be a part of. And just like paradise, paradise is infinite. And that is something that you long for and desire. So continue working towards it. 
Now, when you start understanding these principles, my dear brothers and sisters, and we're going to get deeper into them, when we're talking about the dunya being finite, the greatest reminder of that is the concept of death. The Prophet ﷺ, he tells us, frequent the remembrance of death, the destroyer of pleasures. And you'll notice that any time the topic of death comes up, it refocuses you. You reprioritize your life that you know what? I need to make sure I do a better job of my salah. I need to make sure I do a better job of fasting and reading Quran and making dhikr. Why? Because one day I too will die. And that is something that I cannot emphasize enough, emphasize enough my dear brothers and sisters, is the remembrance of death changes everything. And that is why you find some of the predecessors, they would dig their own grave while they're still alive. And they would go and lay in that grave and give themselves a pep talk saying that one day I will die and I will be laying here. What have I prepared for that day? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opens up a window in that grave. Will my window be a window of Jannah or will it be a window of Jahannam? And they used to speak to themselves in that fashion and in that manner. And they used to speak to themselves in that fashion and in that manner, trying to prepare themselves for that. Because my dear brothers and sisters, when you don't get this remembrance of death, you get too comfortable in life. You start thinking about all of the things that you want to achieve in terms of how big of a house that you want, how nice of a car that you want, what type of job you want, how, what type of money you want to earn, how much money you have to have in your bank account, what type of investment portfolio you want to have. And you keep thinking about that. And then when it comes to death, you start realizing, I can't take a single one of those things with me. But what I can take with me are my deeds, and that is what I need to invest in. That is what I need to invest in. And that is what the finite of the dunya reminds us of. Now when we think about the infinite nature of the hereafter, my dear brothers and sisters, as I mentioned, there's a scary part to it, which is Jahannam. So I want you to think about the fire of this world. The times you may have touched the stove, then you may have touched something hot, and it actually burnt you. The Prophet ﷺ, he reminds us that the fire of Jahannam is 70 times, 69 times more hotter. And Allah tells us in the Quran, Qul naru That say the fire of Jahannam is much, much more severe. Now what we don't realize, my dear brothers and sisters, often, is that because we don't see Jahannam, it's out of sight, out of mind. But the reality is, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created Jahannam as the worst form of punishment. So I want you to think about the time where you felt pain in this life. Perhaps someone died, perhaps you got divorced, perhaps you had an injury. You know, something may have happened that you have felt some pain. But there is no pain like the pain of Jahannam. And that is why it is exponentially increased, my brothers and sisters. And that is to deter us from committing sins and disobeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Just like we felt that pain, that pain is going to be much, much more severe. So when you think about the infinite nature of Jahannam, you also realize I shouldn't disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because I don't want to have that as my destination. I want to be as far as possible from Jahannam. You don't want to be in the burning flame. You don't want to be in a situation where your body and your skin is burnt so crisp and regenerated so that it can be burnt again. 
You don't want to be in a situation where angels are putting hooks in your body and splitting you in half and then recreating you so that you can be punished again. You don't want to be in a situation where you are in a pool of blood and rocks are thrown at you and rocks are shoved in your mouth and you're forced to drown in that blood. You don't want to be in a situation where it is so hot that you're not given anything to drink except your own pus and boiling water. You don't want to be in a situation where Fir'aun and Iblis are your roommates. That is what Jahannam is about. And Jahannam is meant to scare the living daylights out of you. Now I understand it is an uncomfortable situation to be in to think about that. But my dear brothers and sisters, our predecessors used Jahannam as a motivation. Ibn Qudama, Imam al-Ghazali, rahimahumullah, and others, they talk about when an individual is about to stand in Salah, how some of the predecessors used to stand in Salah. Some of them imagining as if the angel of death was there waiting for them. How would you pray your Salah in that state? Some of them imagining Jannah is in front of them and Jahannam is behind them. That it is just at their heels that if they skip the Salah or do not pray it properly, then that is their abode. While using the motivation of Jannah in front of them that I will get to shortly, to continue going and to continue striving harder. So let us not forget Jahannam, my dear brothers and sisters. Allah created it as a reminder for us that that is the lifestyle you want to avoid in this life so that is you're not your destination in the hereafter. Now moving on to Jannah, my dear brothers and sisters. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells us a lot about it. But in my opinion, the most significant thing that He tells us about Jannah, He tells us, that they will have each and every single thing that they desire and we will still have more to give them. What does that mean? How can Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give you everything that you desire yet still have more to give you? Aren't our desires infinite? And the answer is no. Our understanding of desire is directly related to what we've experienced or what we've seen. Those are the things that we desire. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prepared in Jannah that which no eye has seen, that which no ear has heard, and that which no mind has thought of. So there is more to Jannah than we can possibly imagine, and that was Allah has prepared. And the most beautiful thing in Jannah, which we may not be able to understand, is to see the beautiful face of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To see the beautiful face of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is going to be the most pleasant and the happiest moment in Jannah for everyone that gets to enter. Now for some of us, we may think, why would that be the happiest moment? Is it not going to be the mansions? Is it not going to be the hulls of Jannah? Is it not going to be all the things that Allah has prepared for us? Why is meeting Allah the greatest? Well, my dear brothers and sisters, our intellects can only take us so far in understanding that Allah is our creator, Allah is our sustainer. Allah loves us more than our own parents. And meeting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, insha'Allah, will be a very special occasion. But that deepest understanding of what's going to make it special is something that you just have to wait for and see. And just like we believe that Jannah is a reality and Jahannam is a reality, we believe that it is a reality that the happiest moment in the life of any believer will be the day that they see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We just believe it. And we'll get to experience it, insha'Allah, to get its true Meaning. So that was the foundational principle of spirituality according to Ibn al-Qayyim. He says, understanding that the dunya is finite, so limit your ambitions accordingly. 
an understanding that the akhirah is infinite. So control your sins accordingly and build your ambitions for the hereafter for Jannah accordingly. Number two, when you look at the life of the Prophet ﷺ, were there any specific actions that the Prophet ﷺ took that we would consider spiritual actions? That he went out of his way to attain spirituality. So often, as I mentioned, we have certain groups in this day and age, they want to turn off the lights, they want to chant, they want to put the chair in the middle and imagine as if the Prophet ﷺ is there. Did the Prophet ﷺ or the companions do those sort of things? And the answer is no, they did not go out of their way to attain spirituality, but rather they implemented Islam in its simplest and truest form, and that is what brought the spirituality about. So you do not practice spirituality to do good deeds, you do good deeds and the good deeds bring about spirituality. And that is perhaps one of the greatest messages of understanding spirituality. That spirituality does not bring about good deeds, but good deeds bring about spirituality. And the more good deeds that you do, the easier it is to submit to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The more sins that you commit, the harder it becomes to submit and the harder it becomes to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Use that as a general equation for your life. And that is why the individual that can engage their day in ibadah and in worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they will truly be successful. You know, one of the most remarkable things that you read about our predecessors, the Salaf, my dear brothers and sisters, is that some of them used to say about other companions, that if so-and-so knew that he was going to die today, there is no action that he could have increased in his life. There's no action that he could have done that he could have increased in his life. Meaning that their whole life, their whole day was already surrounded by ibadah and was built around ibadah. So your day starts off early in the morning, praying Qiyamul Layl and Tahajjud, then you pray your Fajr, then you make your remembrances of the morning, you read some Quran, you go and do business. You go and do business not purely for the sake of earning an income, but for the sake of providing your, for your family, which is an act of ibadah. Giving sadaqah and zakah, which is an act of ibadah. Helping the poor and destitute, which is an act of ibadah. And then they do that, then he took a short nap, not for the sake of taking a nap, but for the sake of getting energy so that they can worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even more. They prayed Salatul Dhuhr, they prayed their sunnah prayers, they prayed the duha prayers, and they continued their day. When they used to interact with people, they would go out of their ways to say Assalamu Alaikum and Wa Alaikum Assalam. They would go out of their ways to make dua for people so that people can make dua for them. They would go out of their way to come to the masjid as much as they possibly could. Because they understood that the masjid was a sanctuary that in, when you're in the masjid, it's difficult to commit sin. And when you're in the masjid, your prayers get multiplied. When they were in the masjid, they would frequently remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Asr time would come, they would pray, then they would say the remembrances of the evening till Maghrib time. They would pray their Maghrib, they would go back home, spend time with their family, and even that was an act of ibadah. Because they knew that the Messenger of Allah said that the best of us are those that are best to your families. They would pray their Salat al-Isha and go to bed early, and then wake up again and pray their Tahajjud. And this is what it meant that any free moments they'd have, they'd be helping people. Other than that, they're engaged in ibadah. 
This is what their lives used to look like. So what you eventually realize is that if you fill up your schedule with good deeds, my dear brothers and sisters, you don't have to go out of your way to become spiritual. You only go out of your way to become spiritual when you're not doing the good deeds that you're meant to do. So this whole concept of attaining spirituality without the Qur'an and the Sunnah and without prophetic tradition is not founded in our faith. And that is why going back to these fundamental principles and these fundamental actions like dhikr and recitation of the Qur'an and the remembrance of death, that is what needs to be done. Praying your salah on time, fighting against your nafs to get to the masjid, that is what spirituality used to look like. So let us focus on three components right now, inshallah. Number one, the issue of salah. And I want to bring various things to our attention when it comes to salah. Number one is the state that you approach your salah in. We hurry to salah, we hurry in salah, we hurry out of salah. But the reality is the Prophet ﷺ, he considered the salah the coolness of his eyes and it was a breath of fresh air for him. How do you actually achieve that level? Achieving that level, my dear brothers and sisters, means that before you approach the salah, you've emptied your heart and your mind of anything that can distract it. That's why if you have to eat, you eat before your salah. You have to go to the bathroom, you go to the bathroom before the salah. You have to deal with something urgent and important, deal with that thing that is urgent and important before you come to the salah. So that shaitan cannot use it as a tool against you to distract you in your salah. And then as you approach the masjid, you will make your wudu. As you're making wudu, the Prophet ﷺ, he reminds us that every drop of water that falls off of us, our sins are being forgiven. And that starts developing the frame of mind that I'm here to have my sins forgiven by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Prophet ﷺ reminds us that people will shine and glow on the day of judgment due to the wudu that they made. So that the parts of the body that had made wudu, they will shine on the day of judgment due to the wudu that they made, reminding us of the day of judgment, that I am doing this today. I'm about to pray today. I'm about to struggle in standing today so that the standing on the day of judgment becomes easy. Because if you do not struggle to stand in this life, the standing of the hereafter becomes very difficult. And that is why the salah is the first thing that you are asked about. If that becomes easy, everything becomes easy. So you remind yourself of that even before you start the salah. And then you come to your place of prayer. And as I used to mention, there used to be this almost imaginative force that they used to use of imagining the angel of death, of imagining the, the angel that writes down your, the deeds, of imagining Jannah in front of you and Jahannam behind you to prepare you for all of those things that am I prepared for death? Is the angel that is writing down the deeds going to write down that I had a proficient and good salah? Is Jannah in front of me actually going to be my destination? Am I praying well enough to get there? And if I fall short, am I afraid enough of falling into Jahannam? This is all before you even start the salah. And then as you begin the salah, you say, Allahu Akbar. What does that phrase mean to us? This is something that unfortunately we say so quickly that we don't even reflect upon. But when you say Allahu Akbar, take a small moment to pause and reflect upon what you've just said. That there is nothing greater in my life, there's nothing more important in my life, there is nothing that deserves my attention at this point more than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
And that is how you eradicate all of those distractions and focus solely on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is why the Prophet وسلم, reminds us that when you approach the salah, this is your opportunity to be in solitude to converse with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So let every individual look at and pay attention to how he or she is conversing with Allah. Can you imagine someone's in an intimate conversation with you and they're speaking at lightning speed? You would think, what is this person doing? Yet when it comes to the recitation of our Quran in Salah, why do we feel comfortable speaking so fast when this is the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we're reciting back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Allah knows this speech already. He already knows what you're going to say. Why are you hurrying through it? That spirituality will be attained when you take your time. And that is why the Prophet ﷺ, after every verse, he used to pause. And you learn this particularly about Surah Fatiha, that when you start off by saying, Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala proclaims to the angels, look at my slave that is praising me. You need to give that pause so you respect the response of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is your intimate conversation with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I don't have the time to go into the detailed explanation of that hadith, but please look up that hadith of Surah Fatiha and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala responds after every verse. And you truly understand the symbolic nature of that conversation. And then when you make ruku'ah, you understand that your sins are falling off of you just like leaves fall off of a tree. And then when you stand up, you say, That indeed Allah hears the one who praises Him. And then you say, Oh, our Lord, all praise is due to you. Hearing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ta is hearing what you are saying. And then you go down for sajda. And the closest the slave is to Allah is in sajda. You ask and beg and plead of Allah while praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the most high, subhana rabbi al-a'la, while recognizing you are at your lowest position. That Allah is the strong, we are the weak. Allah is the rich, we are the poor. Allah is the one that gives and we are the ones that receive. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has the right to be proud and we only have the right to be humble and have humility. So the way we approach the prayer, my dear brothers and sisters, also has to change. And that is a type of spirituality that the Salaf had. You look at the way they approached the congregation, some of the Imams of the Salaf, for 40 years, give or take, they were seen to be standing in the first row. They were seen never having to miss the takbiratul ihram, the opening takbir of the Salah. Why? Because your Salah in congregation, not only does it give you more reward, but you're actually more focused. How much more focused you are in the salah in terms of keeping track of what rakah you're on and what you're saying when you're in the congregation versus when you're praying by yourself. When you're praying by yourself, you have the ability to hurry. When you're praying in the congregation, you're at the schedule of the imam, hopefully who is taking his time and is leading by example. So my dear brothers and sisters, that is how we should be approaching the salah. And I'll conclude with the last point about the salah before I move to the next portion which is as you finish the salah, we're encouraged to say astaghfirullah, astaghfirullah, astaghfirullah. Seeking forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
And that's amazing. Even though you did not commit any sin, the first thing that you do is you seek Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's forgiveness. Why? For the very possibility that you may have fallen short in your salah, that you may have made a mistake, for a reminder that as you continue throughout the day and you do make sins and make mistakes, frequent the istighfar. Frequently say the istighfar. And that was the reminder of the salah. I move on to the portion of companionship. And I want to bring back the story of Sheikh bin Baz ta'ala that I shared with you at the beginning. My dear brothers and sisters, when you look at that example, Sheikh bin Baz was the Grand Mufti of Saudi Arabia. He did not need anyone to remind him. He could have opened a book, could have listened to a lecture, could have had someone read to him. He could have done all of those things. But he asked people to share a reminder because the reminder benefits the believer. It's not just about him, but it's about all the people in attendance. It's about all of the people in attendance that everyone gets to benefit. Showing us that our gatherings should be gatherings of benefit, gatherings of ajr, gatherings of seeking the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and not just gatherings of wasting time. It's okay from time to time to have some ideal chit chat, it's okay from time to time to do other activities, but never should you have a whole gathering that is completely void of benefit. Some sort of reminder should always be given. And Sheikh bin Baz led by example. And what was the important thing I wanted to highlight? That in that gathering, you would find people bring all sorts of statements of Imams, all sorts of ex exquisite and exotic and rare statements in hoping that they would be reminded and the Shaykh would be reminded and perhaps they would stick out amongst the other students. But eventually it was the person that recited the Quran that really moved the Shaykh. Because there is no better reminder than the Quran. And this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala keeps reminding us about in the Quran. Indeed, we have revealed the Quran as this dhikr. Is there anyone that will be reminded? And we're going to get to the Quran as the last portion, inshallah. But my dear brothers and sisters, you've talked about your relationship with Allah in the salah. Now let's talk about our relationship amongst ourselves. Life, the way we live it and conduct it, that is where the spirituality is actually going to be. You look at the example of the Prophet ﷺ that Shaykh Walid was mentioning yesterday, a hundred times a day and the gathering the Prophet ﷺ is just repeating istighfar. Hundred times a day the Prophet ﷺ is seeking forgiveness from Allah ﷻ and asking for Allah ﷻ to grant him tawbah. This is what the Prophet ﷺ is doing. So think about how you conduct yourselves in your gatherings. Think about your relationship with your friends. Are these people that are taking you to Jannah? Or are these people taking you in the other direction? Are you having a positive impact on them? My dear brothers and sisters, one of the greatest things that we can do is to educate our friends to remind us. And then you have this competition amongst yourselves, like Abu Bakr and Umar did. Who can get to Jannah first? And who can get to the highest level of Jannah? And that's what it's all about with your companions. But that has to be a conscious decision that you make amongst your friends. That we're not just going to compete for this dunya, we're going to compete even more for the akhirah. And that's what true friendship is about. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran, my dear brothers and sisters, that on the day of judgment, people will complain to Allah. Ya that woe to me only if I did not take so-and-so as a friend. Indeed, they misguided me. 
You want to be people that people complain about on the Day of Judgment? Do you want to complain about your friends? No, you don't. So look at the way you interact with them. Look at the way and how much dhikr and remembrance of Allah you bring with them. Look at the social activities that you do. That yes, you may go hang out, you may go have something to eat, but when time for a conference comes, will you come as a group of friends? Those are the friends that you want to be with. When it comes time to pray in the masjid, do your friends say, hey, let's go to the masjid and pray before we do anything else? That is a type of companionship and friendship you want to see. And the vast majority of our faith, my dear brothers and sisters, is seen in the way that we interact with people. And that is going to be with your friends and with your companions. Each and every one of us will have that close companion. And that close companion, my dear brothers and sisters, that is the level of your faith. That is the level of your worship. So when you go out of your way to help them, that is your ajr with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When you go out of your way to help them, that is you receiving help from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When you go out of your way to help them, that is more beloved to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam than making itikaf in al-masjid al-nabawi. So in your relationships with other people is your spirituality with all the good deeds that you do if you have the right intention. And I move on to the last portion of my talk, my dear brothers and sisters, which is about the Qur'an. And this is something that I will start off by saying, I myself am guilty of neglect, and I do not read as much Qur'an as I should. And as I prepared this portion, I wanted to share that, because a lot of times we may think, you know what, because a person is on stage, they're the ideal role model, these are the people that you look up to. And I'm here to say, no, my dear brothers and sisters, the people that we look up to are the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the companions, and those that have passed away. Because they are the ones that are saved from trials. The ones that are alive are still being tried in various ways. So when I talk about my relationship with the Qur'an, I recognize my weakness and I recognize my shortcoming. And I also understand that each and every one of us has a place that we need to start from. And these sort of lectures they rejuvenate my own relationship with the Qur'an and make my commitment even stronger that you know what, I need to do even more. Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah in his famous tafsir, he talks about the completion of the Qur'an. And he says the completion of the Qur'an for lazy people is to do it once every 40 days. If you're lazy and useless, then you'll finish the Qur'an once every 40 days. And I can't help but laugh almost every time I read that statement to think, SubhanAllah, if that is for the lazy, how about for the ones that don't finish the Qur'an? What caliber are we at if we're not finishing the Qur'an? Maybe once in Ramadan, if we are fortunate. So understand, yes, we have fallen short, but don't feel bad about it. Because Allah has given you life, and you have time to recommit and do more. And that is what this portion is all about. We may have fallen short, but we're going to reconnect. My dear brothers and sisters, you look at the imams of the predecessors every three days, every seven days, every ten days. That is the average that they're taking to finish the Qur'an. Some of them were so diligent that even in one day they were able to finish it. Now that's not what I'm saying that you should uh, you know, give up everything and just focus on reading Qur'an. But what I am saying is, look at the way that you spend your time. If you take some time before your salah, some time after your salah to read some Qur'an, it's quite easy to finish a juz of the Qur'an. Do five pages with every salah, that's 25 pages, which is almost one juz. 
Within 30 days, you would have finished a Qur'an. And that is where the ajr is, but that's also where a dua which is answered is. And our relationship with the Qur'an, my dear brothers and sisters, we don't understand the impact that it has in our lives. Starting off from the ajr, the statement of Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu has 30 hasanat, 30 good deeds as the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam tells us. But the simple recitation of alif lam mim also has 30 hasanat. So can you imagine that three letters as compared to a long sentence has the same amount of reward? That shows us the barakah of the Qur'an. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala placed the Qur'an as a guide for us. That those that allow or that use the Qur'an to be led by them. Good, good reading the Qur'an is very important. That's good. Islam child. May Allah make things easy, brother. Getting back to the Qur'an, my dear brothers and sisters. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He has placed the Qur'an as a guide. And those that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed to allow the Qur'an to lead them, it will only lead them to Jannah. It will only lead them to having serene and tranquil lives. It will only lead them to being from those individuals who are exclusive to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ahlullahi wa khasatu. They are the people of the Qur'an. My dear brothers and sisters, we have nothing in this life of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala other than His very speech that is the Qur'an. This Qur'an, my dear brothers and sisters, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala calls it a shifa. It is a cure for our spiritual illnesses. It is a cure for our physical illnesses. It is a cure for the illnesses of society. It is a cure for the illnesses of the world if we but kneel. And this Qur'an, my dear brothers and sisters, will testify for us or against us on the Day of Judgment. Allah's Messenger sallallahu alayhi he tells us, Al-Qur'anu hujjatan lak aw alayk. That the Qur'an is either a proof for you on the Day of Judgment or a proof against you. And the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi is quoted in the Qur'an as complaining to Allah on the Day of Judgment as Ya Rabbi inna qawmi takhadu hadha al-Qur'ana mahjura That O oh my Lord, indeed my people have taken the Qur'an as something worthy of being abandoned. And we don't want to be from amongst those people whom the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi complains about on the Day of Judgment because they abandoned the Qur'an. My dear brothers and sisters, those of you that are fortunate to memorize the Qur'an will see the impact that it has on your memory and on your intellect. Those of you that are fortunate to reflect upon the Qur'an have seen how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opens up deeper and deeper meanings of the Qur'an to you the more you read and the more you reflect. My dear brothers and sisters, those of you that frequently read the Qur'an have seen how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protects you from evil and guides you in the most difficult of situations. My dear brothers and sisters, in the Qur'an is that which will be a light for us in the grave. My dear brothers and sisters, in the Qur'an is that which will be heavy for us on our scales on the Day of Judgment. My dear brothers and sisters, in the Qur'an is that which will be clouds for us 
to shield us on the day of judgment when there is no shade other than the shade that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provides for the people. My dear brothers and sisters, when we talk about spirituality, there is no purification of the soul without the recitation of the Quran. So I want to leave you with this summary, my dear brothers and sisters, that what I would like myself and all of us to take away from this lecture, that when we understand spirituality, it is not some obscure, obtuse topic, but rather it is embracing Islam in its simplest and truest and purest form. When we think of spirituality, it is about living your day-to-day -day life with Islam. When we think about spirituality, let us try to implement these three things in our lives. The way we em embrace the Salah before, during, and after. Then number two, looking at the way we interact with people and what our relationships say about us and the way we conduct ourselves in those relationships and how our gatherings reflect who we truly are. And last but not least, our relationship with the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The point of this lecture, my dear brothers and sisters, is not to make us feel bad for not being spiritual and lacking, but the point of this lecture is us, for us to recognize that we're each on a journey to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and we have an obligation upon one another to help one another to reach Jannah. So if we see people falling short in any of these categories or in other, any other acts of Islam, you have a right upon me, I have a right upon you to advise you and to remind you that, hey, let us get our act together. And you'll see, my dear brothers and sisters, when we get our act together and become more spiritual beings in its truest form of Islam, that is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants victory to this ummah. So I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes us of those that return back to Islam in its purest form and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes us a cause of victory and not a cause of humiliation and defeat. Allahumma ameen. Jazakumullah khairan for your attention. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik. Ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilaik. Wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. La ilaha illallah Ashhadu